seeking freedom in a marble mansion. For if you're seeking freedom, you won't find it there. For even when it's sunny, you'll be counting money. Keep it up that showcase your face fine with It helps to know the genesis of some of these songs. That uh, last song was written um, after an interesting and not very positive experience. We had somebody who lived here for many years and he never paid uh, the dues that people pay to meet our expenses with utilities and everything. And uh, we let him stay. And he was one of those people who always find fault with everything. At every satsang, he would try to find some question that he could ask me that would embarrass me. 
And uh, I always answered him calmly. Finally, we got a new general manager, and he said to him, Look, what is the point of having, of being always critical? And this man said, Well, I think it helps the community to have a gadfly. And this new manager, Puru, said, Well, yes, I can see that it may help us, but what is it doing for you? <laughs> and uh, he, he uh, wouldn't get the point. So finally, Puru said, Look, We've allowed you to be here 12 years and have not insisted. Now we have to say either begin to pay or leave. So he decided to leave. But before he left, he came over to me and spent over an hour telling me all my faults and uh, uh, what, as he perceived them. And if you want to find fault with the universe, you can find plenty of fault. So anyway, I listened calmly. And after he had finished his diatribe, telling me virtually my, my life had been totally wasted and useless, I thanked him. And after he left, I wrote that song that you just heard. And if you take everything calmly and don't get uh, personally affected, you will find that God can give you great blessings. So next time somebody insults you or in some way slights you, instead of being offended, thank him. That's what I did. I thanked him for the trouble he'd taken and just left it at that. There was no point in answering. Why should I justify a self which I'm doing my best to get out of? <laughs> so I just said, oh, let it be. <clears throat> Whether it was true or not didn't really matter. I'll, I'm trying my best, and that's the best anyone can do. Anyway, now let's have our revenge. Just for once, come to me. 
Please meditate on these words from Christus Fraternity. I was made for thee alone. I was made for dropping flowers of devotion gently at thy feet on the altar of the morning. My hands were made to serve thee willingly, to remain folded in adoration, waiting for thy coming, and when thou comest, to bathe thy feet with my tears. My voice was made to sing thy glory. My feet were made to seek thy temples everywhere. My eyes were made a chalice to hold thy burning love and the wisdom falling from thy nature's hands. My ears were made to catch the music of thy footsteps echoing through the halls of space and to hear thy divine melodies flowing through all heart tracts of devotion. My lips were made to breathe forth thy praises and thine intoxicating inspirations. My love was made to throw incandescent searchlight flames to find thee hidden in the forest of my desires. My heart was made to respond to thy call alone. My soul was made to be the channel through which thy love might flow uninterruptedly into all thirsty souls. And from Affirmations for Self-Healing, Consideration for Others. Consideration for others is one of the marks of a refined spirit. Many people on the spiritual path feel that since it is within that they are seeking the kingdom of God, and since they are working at developing a spirit of non-attachment, it doesn't matter how they express themselves to others. Indeed, their inconsiderateness is an affirmation of their independence of the feelings and opinions of others. If God is pleased, they tell themselves, what matters the displeasure of man? Yet by unkindness we can never please God, who is all kindness itself. Sensitivity to others is a way of self-expansion. One truly achieves freedom in himself when he can respect their realities, because he is wholly at peace with his own. Let us affirm together, by sensitivity to others' realities, I keep myself in readiness to perceive the truth no matter what garb it wears. By sensitivity to others' realities, I keep myself in readiness to perceive the truth no matter what garb it wears. By sensitivity to others' realities, I keep myself in readiness to perceive the truth no matter what garb it wears. Let us pray, Divine Mother, I worship thee in all thy, uh, thy forms, both ignorant and wise. 
finding thee within. May I behold thee enshrined in omnipresence. Om. Peace. Amen. And finally, I would like to read from Rays of the One Light. Week 27, Abiding in God. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self, within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Yogananda often emphasized, more often to his disciples than to the general public, but also to everyone generally, for it was a universal teaching, the importance of attunement. For divine understanding cannot be created, it must be perceived. To the disciples, Yogananda spoke of the importance of attunement with the Guru. To others, he urged the importance, at least, of attuning oneself to higher consciousness. Can an eagle rise without support from the sustaining air? Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. How can we abide in him? Jesus said, If my words abide in you. By words he meant not only his spoken words, but his vibrations, his consciousness, of which the words are only an expression. We must abide by the teachings, but we must also uh, also absorb those teachings into ourselves, that they become our own experience. For disciples of this path, the more in their hearts they live consciously in the presence of the Masters, the more they will find the Divine Presence living within them. For all truth-seekers, whether disciples or not, the more they live sustained inwardly by the awareness of God's presence, the higher they will find themselves soaring in wisdom and joy. For the Bhagavad Gita says in the tenth chapter, I am the source of everything. From me all creation rises. Blessed with this realization, the wise, awe-stricken, adore me. Thus through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. I remember Master one time saying to a few of the disciples, a few of you will fall, that means from the path, but it needn't be if you would stay in tune. I have found again and again that what really is that, that which lifts us, that which saves us from delusion, from the darkness of a temptation or ignorance, is attunement with the Guru. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Master makes a very interesting statement. He says, that thoughts are universally, not individually, rooted. It's a very interesting thought to consider. You don't think your own thoughts. They depend upon the level of awareness that you are living on. In other words, well, let me tell you a story. When I'd been with Master a few months only, I suddenly fell into a mood. 
And I suddenly felt he doesn't love me, he doesn't care for me, etc., etc. This sort of thing that can come to any silly young man that uh, uh, is still in living more in the emotions than he should. And I tried to reason my way out of it. Well, this is something very important to understand, that your reason always follows your strong feelings. And therefore, don't trust reason. I know when I was a child, I used to play games with this simple truth just to convince myself that reason is not the final arbiter. I would say, for example, to my mother, Mother, don't give me spinach for lunch. I didn't like spinach. Because spinach is green, and green is the color of envy. And you don't want me to grow up envious, do you? And I would know that this was absolutely false reasoning. But I did it to persuade myself, to show myself that my reason alone, I would not find what I was looking for. I went very much by reason, but always what guided me in the end was um, my feelings. And when I came to Autobiography of a Yogi, that was a very important truth in me, that I put reason aside. I remember that my mother had been trying to persuade me to uh, love God and to seek God, and I didn't know if God really existed. And she would try to tell me about the lives of saints. I didn't know anything about the lives of saints, but when she talked about their miracles, I said, Mother, come off it. It just seemed too ridiculous. But yet, when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, there was something in the vibration of his consciousness that was so convincing that even on page eight, when Lahiri Mahashai materialized before Master's father and said, Lahiri, I said, uh, Bhagavati, you are too hard on your employee. I didn't doubt it for a moment. I couldn't fully accept it because it was just beyond my experience. But I had to put it on a shelf and say, well, I'll address this one later. And I found when I lived with him, there were times when my old doubting tendency would come up, but always I found that the answer to doubt is not intellectual answers, it is love. By loving him, I absolutely came to accept him fully. So as they say, perfect love casts out fear, so also perfect love casts out doubt, casts out all darkness. But the time when I was feeling this mood, I asked my, my mental citizens, well, do you like being full of doubt and full of moods and so on? And they all answered, no, we don't like it. We're unhappy being in a mood. So I said, well, what shall we do about it? We can't reason our way out of it, so what shall we do? And they answered, let's sit down and meditate. So I sat down and meditated and put my mind very strongly here at the point between the eyebrows. Five minutes was all it took. I changed my level of consciousness. Suddenly I saw everything differently. The way you see things depends entirely on your own level of consciousness. If you have a low level of consciousness, you'll see all the reasons in the world why that is where your thoughts ought to be, that is where truth is. The thing that you need to do is change that level, and then suddenly you'll see the whole world in a different light. So the more you can lift your mind into this thought of God, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Sometimes people have said to me, do I need a guru? I say, not at all, don't think about it. And why do I say that? Because I see that they don't understand the very need for a guru. But I say, if you want God, then you need a guru. I can say that with absolute certainty because you can, the mind will trick you a thousand times. It'll tell you all the reasons, and as long as you're living on that level, why this particular delusion is good, why it's right to have, a, to, be, to want to get your, get revenge on somebody, why it's right to want this, want money and fame, why it's right to... The world will justify itself to you according to your own attunement to the world. And you can't create your own thoughts. 
All you can do is manifest those thoughts which pertain to a particular level of consciousness. So Jesus is saying, and certainly you need a guru if you want God. There was this story of a boy of 15 who went to a great master and said he wanted to be accepted as a disciple. And the master said, come with me. So they went down to a river. And the master took his head and pushed him down, pushed it under water, and held it there for a while till the boy was spluttering. And finally the master let him up. He said, what did you want more than anything else while I was holding your head under water? He said, air, air. And the master said, when you want God that badly, come back. The guru, the guru is for those who are serious. You need, however, to understand that you yourself can never do it. Now, what are we really talking about? Okay, the job on the spiritual path is to overcome the sense of ego, to overcome this thought that you are separate from him. Ego is the great obstacle on the spiritual path. Actually, this is something that can be emphasized now as it was not possible to emphasize so clearly in ages past for the simple reason that it was not possible to see that this body is the same as your body, the same as all bodies, the same as that tree, the same as this grass, because matter doesn't exist except as a vibration of energy. But before science showed us that matter is only a vibration of energy, how could I really persuade myself that I and you are completely one? I mean, I squeeze myself, I say, ouch. You don't say ouch, I say ouch. <laughs> There's a difference there. But underneath it, we have to understand that when you suffer, a part of me does suffer. When I inflict pain on others, I feel some of that pain too. And when we've reached this point of knowing, which science has been a great blessing in helping us to understand this truth, that everything really is uh, his consciousness, and then we have to come to that point also, understanding that we are only manifestations of him. The goal of the spiritual life is first of all to realize that your ego is a delusion. It isn't you who make any decisions. All these things are done through you according to your level of consciousness. Change that level and your actions change, your thoughts change, everything about you changes. So what you must do is get rid of this thought that you matter. That's why I was saying earlier, if somebody insults you, thank him. Anything that will remind you that you aren't this ego will be really a good thing. I remember one time uh, I was, I've told this story before and most of you have heard it, but it's worth telling again. There was a Zen ceremony installation of a zoo, new uh, Zen Roshi in San Francisco. And I was at the ceremony, I'd been invited. And afterwards I was talking to a young lady outside and I asked her her name and she told me. And then she asked me my name. And I said, well, I'm, I'm Swami Kriyananda. Oh, Swami Kriyananda, but, but you're famous. I said, well, maybe, but why this word but? <laughs> and she said, but all the other famous people I know seemed important. <laughs> well, I knew what she meant was seemed self-important, but I liked her, her definition. I liked the thought of not being important. I know I was one time back in Virginia, there was a big thing, um, Samuel something or other, I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, he wanted to start a community, and so he had me um, invited out there. I was the only speaker on that platform who had actually started a community, but I was less known because I don't travel around the country lecturing and so on. And so I invited some of these teachers to a dinner afterwards. Well, I was the host. I was paying the bill. I deserved some consideration. I was absolutely pleased when they totally ignored me. They were so busy talking to each other on their famous level, etc. It pleased me no end to be totally 
unimportant. The more you can emphasize this thought of that you don't really matter and how people treat you, what does it matter after all in the end? Thank them because you want to get out of this sense of self. The job is to realize that you are that consciousness which is functioning through your ego and functioning through all egos. And when you've reached that state, then you are a Jivan Mukta. When you cannot create any new karma, because as long as you act without the thought, I'm doing it, then you don't have karma. The karma exists, but let's say you do something that if you feel you've done it, someday a rock will fall on your head and squash you. If you don't feel that you've done it, it will still fall, but you won't be standing there. <laughs> and so to get out of karma, you have to get rid of this thought that I have done it. Then anything that you do, action is karma. You can't get rid of action. You have to act. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, it is not possible to live without acting. Breathing is an action. Thinking is an action. Dreaming at night is an action. But if you don't feel, I am the doer, I am doing this act, then the results will return to others. Masters act, but they don't act for themselves. And so the good that they do reverts to their disciples. And that's how masters take the karma of their disciples on their own shoulders. So the state of Jivan Mukta is the realization that you aren't really doing anything yourself. It is being done through you. And what you will find, the astonishing thing is that when you have this clear attitude, when it's really deeply embedded in you, it's not as if then you just don't do anything. You can do a thousand times more because you don't have this thought of, I. all right, let me put it in another way. How is it? I remember that, well, I'll tell the whole story first of all. Because I was, when I came to Master, I was over-intellectual. I didn't like it. I wanted to have more devotion. But this was my tendency, which I had developed, and I've had to work with that. So one day, I was out with him. I'd been with him less than a month. When I was out in the desert with him, and he asked for a bag to be brought to him, and then he turned the light out. I heard a little rummaging and paper rattling, and suddenly, suddenly, bzz, 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 one of these guns that uh, shoots sparks of flame. <laughs> and he turned the light on, he looked at me, and he said, how do you like it, Walter? <laughs> I, I said, it's fine, sir. I just, I had to sort of adjust my mind to this great master playing with a toy gun. <laughs> then he rummaged, and he got another little pistol out, and he, shot it, and a little projectile went up, became a parachute, and we solemnly watched it descending <laughs> to the... <laughs> and I just... Uh, I mean, I appreciated it, but still, I was trying to get over the shock. <laughs> and he looked at me very seriously. He said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, here's an important question. How could God, if he's childlike, have created this vastly complex universe? Childlike does not mean childish. Childlike means not having any prejudgment, accepting everything as it is. If you can do everything from a sense of being zero, you can go in any direction and do anything. The less you have the thought that this burden of decision is on your shoulders, the more you can find that everything comes easily to you. I remember we had somebody living here many years ago who was somehow decided to write music. Well, I'm all for anybody doing anything he wants to, but it was very derivative music. And I tried to get him to see that, first of all, get in tune, then God will be able to write the kind of music through you that is yours to write. And, uh, he said, well, you know how it is when you write music, you just have to do it. I said, I don't know any such thing. I have never written a single note out of a compulsion to write music. I could never have written any music and still be just as fulfilled. Well, that's what I'm talking about. 
If you don't feel you're doing it and don't have to do anything, then you can do a few things, and I've managed to demonstrate a little of that in my life. We found out recently that the total number of books I've written is about 140, and uh, music over 400 pieces, and photographs, well, I took 15,000 slides, and when I learned I'd done that many, I decided that's enough. <laughs> I remember going to the Engadine Valley in Switzerland, which is really one of the most beautiful places in the world. I had my camera with me, but I just left it the whole time in my suitcase. I didn't even think to take it out. When you've done it, then you've done it. You just don't care. But you will be amazed how much more you can do if you work from zero, if you don't feel, what do I want? I have never asked myself, which direction do I want this music to go? I've just asked God. And God can be playful, too. I remember I wanted, I had a slideshow of pictures I'd taken uh, in Romania. And so I wanted to do something. Mind you, Dracula in Romanian just means devil. There's no such thing as a Count Dracula. That was pure, pure fiction. But anyway, the Romanian government made something of it because it attracted tourists. So they took the Braun Castle near Brasov and called it Dracula's Castle. And anyway, so I had this picture of me outside Dracula's Castle, sort of posed like that. <laughs> and so I, I thought, well, I really ought to have a piece of music that will say this, and I had no idea what to do, so I put my f fingers on the piano. I said, well, give me a melody, and suddenly, dum, 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 da. And God has a good sense of humor. Don't think that if he, when he gives you something, it has to be solemn or grave. In fact, I've had a lot of fun writing music that was comical and uh, not serious, or whatever, <laughs> like the non-blues and so on. Anyway, the thing is that I'm not offering myself as a particularly good example, but surely it's one kind of example, that the less I even thought I was doing it, the more I would just ask and the melody was there. And uh, so you will find in your life, the less you feel what will people say? I've never been nervous in lecturing. People say that uh, this is one of the main reasons people get nervous. I've never felt that because I've always felt that if I'm stupid and people find out about it, let them find out. What does it matter? And so you'll find that if you don't worry about, that's why nishkam karma is taught in the Bhagavad Gita, action without desire for the fruits of action, action without the feeling that you are acting, but don't think that means you don't act. Let him act. I remember one time I was in Hollywood Church giving a lecture. The room was full. The church was full. And uh, suddenly I thought, well, Master told us that we should let God speak through us. Maybe I should just sit and just stand here and wait for God to say something. So I stopped speaking. Two minutes went by. Well, you figure somebody speaking and suddenly stopping for two minutes. I know one of, the, one of my friends was perspiring, thinking I had just frozen. But no, I was just comfortably waiting to see if he would speak. And I found he didn't. And I understood that Master's teaching, I understood Master's teaching, I should say, in which he said that I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my reason, will and activity to the right path in everything. So you have to do your best. You can't just wait for him to tell you what to do. One thing that I've learned, though, is that if you feel the guidance to go north, that guidance may change at the next corner. So don't just say, well, I've got the guidance to go north and keep on going north. Always keep your mind open, because then he may tell you, go right or go left. This is one of the problems people get into in religion. Let us say that the goal of life is to find the equator. Well, those who are north of the equator will be told to go south, and those who are south will be told to go north. And so they meet, and human nature being what it is, they keep going. So the people, 
in the southern, uh, in the northern hemisphere, when they get to the equator, they keep going south. And they meet people determined to be going north. And they say, you're supposed to go south. No, you're supposed to go north. So they start fighting. And that's basically what all the religions are about. A master is born to correct a misunderstanding. And then people say, no, we have to carry this to the end. Let the truth come day by day, minute by minute. Feel that guidance. Don't ever be dogmatic. But you will find that the more you offer yourself up to him, the more you will know how you should go, which direction you should go. And uh, so in making yourself uh, understand this principle that you are only the branches of that vine. You're a branch of some vine whether you like it or not. You're not yourself. You're not an individual being. You're a part of the great consciousness of the universe. God created you. But will you be guided by ignorance or by wisdom? This is the issue. I have found that by attunement with Master, everything came that I needed. I didn't have to worry. Somehow I would stumble through to the right answer all the time. This is very, very important. The most important thing on the spiritual path is not to have a guru, but to be attuned with him. To get out of the ego is not possible by the ego. Master told me this story of a man who was being disturbed by a demon. And he had read in the scriptures that if uh, you take a powder and say a mantra over it and cast it on the demon, the demon will vanish. So he tried this, and he threw the powder on the demon, and the demon laughed. He said, before you could even say your incantation, I myself got into that powder. And Master told me this story to illustrate the truth that you can't get rid of the ego by the ego, because the ego is already infected with that delusion that you are trying to get rid of. What you must do is by attunement with the Guru, that's why it says in the Bible also, to all those who received him, gave he power to become the sons of God. You must receive that consciousness. It isn't enough to say, I'm here and you're there. You must try to think with his thoughts. Remember in um, Autobiography of Yogi, where Master speaks of Master Mahashai, he says that he never thought of his thoughts as his own. The more you can offer your mind up to the guru, the more you will find yourself guided right in everything that you need to do. So, to be in tune with the guru means to invite his consciousness into your consciousness. How many disciples living with Master did I hear say, I don't want to completely give my will to him, I have my own will. My own freedom, I must express myself. But they were in delusion, and they ended up leaving the path. Those who say, what have I got to lose in giving up something that doesn't exist anyway? Think of it that way. You don't exist, really. You're just a figment in the infinite imagination. The more you can understand that you've got nothing to defend, nothing to protect, you are he, the more you will find freedom. Freedom is not the freedom or the ability to do what you want to do at any given moment. It is the ability to do what is divinely right for you to do. And people who want to be wrong will feel then you're, I'm not free. Well, you're not free by doing what you don't, what you, what isn't good for you. The answer to it is the more you can act in tune with God, the more you will see that your actions will be in tune with your own true happiness, not with your delusive expectations. This becomes a really interesting thing because, you know, back in Treta Yuga, in the different yugas that you go through, certain elements of maya or delusion are demolished. And in Dwapara Yuga, which we have now entered, the delusion of space will be conquered. And people realize that the most distant galaxy is just as close as, as we are now. It won't be impossible to go to the nearest stars thinking it's going to, it's four light years away, etc. 
know you'll be able to cross their time in very short order. We will, by the end of Dwapara Yuga, have conquered the illusion of time. Actually, the most distant galaxy isn't distant at all. It seems distant because of this delusion. Well, in Treta Yuga, people overcome the delusion of time. And an astonishing thing is that certain writings were penned back in Treta Yuga 5,000 years ago or so, talking about individual lives today. And I, I went to a couple of places where readings of this sort were, were offered. I went to one in Barnala in uh, Punjab. And there it told me about my last life and uh, things that I had needed to overcome and uh, um, said, spoke about my present life and so on. And it was very interesting and very helpful. But then I found another segment of it and it said, the first thing it said was, I have already given him a reading in my Yoga Valli. Apparently there were different segments of it. And it said that in, uh, usually they give you only your past life, your present life, and your next life. Thank God none of them ever gave me my next life. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, but he, he said that uh, uh, in his, in, uh, back in the time of Kurukshetra, he was the ruler of a small kingdom in the northern India, and that uh, he was afraid when the battle of Kuruks, the war of Kurukshetra, came that he might be on the wrong side because the laws of chivalry in those days were that if you um, were asked to fight for a, a particular side, honor bound you to fight for that side. He didn't want to be bound to fight for the Kauravas. That means he must have been living near them. So he gave over his kingdom to his son and went and took initiation in the forest and met his, where he met his guru and so on. And it talked about that lifetime. Then it said this is his eighth life since then. And he was born in this life in Romania, grew up in America. His father named him James. My full name is James Donald Walters. And he said he has brothers, but no sister is possible although one sister will die in his mother's womb. And uh, in uh, fact, when I got home, I asked my mother if she'd ever had a miscarriage, and she said, yes, she did have one. Well, it said different things, very interesting. It said at a certain point, now I've given him the fruit of his good karmas, here is the fruit of his bad karmas. And all of that came true, too. It said there is a danger of sudden death, well, three times in my life there was the possibility of sudden death. One time I was out at the desert retreat and there suddenly a flock of crows flew all around my head. And I thought, well, this has to be a bad omen. <laughs> anyway, two days later I, I'd been sleeping on the terrace outside and I went to make up my bed to go back to Los Angeles. I found between the sheets a squashed black widow spider. And another time I was setting up a microphone for a lecture in uh, Puri in India, and suddenly the short circuit of 230 volts went right through my body, lifted me off the ground. It would have killed me instantly. But in that split second, the fuse blew. And it took them a half an hour to find another fuse, but anyway, my life was spared. And the third time, when I was in Italy, I bought a lambretta, and uh, when it arrived in India, um, I turned the key, and I didn't know it was already in gear. And the moment I turned the key, suddenly it took off at top speed toward a brick wall. And I had about a second and a half to figure out how to get that thing stopped. Well, I stopped this close to the wall. But three times this could have been true. Many things that it said have come true. And uh, it was really amazing that somebody living back thousands of years ago could know about me as an individual and know what would happen to me. You are not free is the point I'm getting to. <laughs> At some point, he could have told me what tie, color tie I would wear. The, there was a man in Los Angeles who told me that he uh, went back there and he was an 
interested in Bringu, and so he wanted to go to a reading in Hosharpur, uh, where the Delhi reading came from, too. And uh, when he reached the pundit's house, he found in the same room people that he had seen on the train in his carriage. And it said, because this devotee of mine has come from a great distance, I've asked other devotees to come and be here on this occasion to celebrate his return. And he named them in the order they were sitting in the room. And a friend of his told me that uh, he had um, had the reading, as this is being read, there will be a thunderclap. Well, the sky was completely blue, but at that moment there was a thunderclap. Did Brigu come forward in time to make that thunderclap happen? I don't know. But really, this thought that time doesn't exist is most interesting when you bring it down to that practical level. But are you free? No, you're not free until you have the freedom to let God act completely through you. That alone is freedom. You don't have the freedom to decide what color tie you will wear. Now, I don't want you to tie yourself in psychological knots. You can say to yourself, well, today I'm going to wear a red tie. And then at the last moment, change it to a blue. How did you know that? No, I think one of the great benefits of these readings is to help us to understand that uh, we are not free in the egoic sense because the ego is bound by delusion, bound to the separatist consciousness that you are uh, that little tiny being. It's a fascinating thing to think about. But... When you understand true freedom, you can do anything. And will God tell you? Was, for instance, Jesus, did, it was known that he would die on the cross. It was predicted centuries before he lived. That mean he wasn't free? He was free because he could have stopped it. But he went through whatever it was for God's will. Okay, well, don't think too much about this because it'll tie you in knots but do understand that if you want to be free know that the ego cannot be free but if you are one with that infinite consciousness that is freedom and the definition of freedom is not the ability to do the unexpected because God knows everything as Master wrote in his poem uh, in Samadhi all thoughts of all men past, present, to come are a part of his consciousness. It isn't the ability to do something unexpected. It's the ability to do that, to do that which will keep you in bliss and guide you toward bliss. So anyway, here we must understand that after getting out of the ego, what is left? Ah, oh. <laughs> billions of lifetimes of past karma. You still have to work out the state of a Jivan Mukta, he has attained the same level as an avatar, the same level as anybody who has gone gone, but he still has that burden of past incarnations. I remember asking Master one time, or rather he said to me, that of the saints in autobiography of a yogi, the only ones who were completely free were Swami Pranabhananda, the saint with two bodies, Ramgopamujamdhan, the saint, the sleepless saint, and our line of gurus. And I asked him about different ones. I asked him about his father. He said, oh, he was still tied to the delusion that we, that we were his sons. He, I asked him about different great masters. No, they still had some past karma to work out. He told me about one saint who was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi and uh, Sirama Yogi. Um, Paul Brunton is book, A Search in Secret India, um, described him. And I got to be with him for four days in a little village of Bucciredipaleum outside uh, Nelore in southern India. And I said to him, you have, you're, he, he's a completely liberated soul. He's not an avatar, but he's a liberated soul. I said to him, you have so much to give. Why do you have so few disciples? 
Maybe I was a bit cheeky, I don't know, but I wanted to know. And he said, God has done what he wanted to do with his body. So no master does anything except as God tells him to do it. Master had a great work to do, but God had given him that work. One time, Master was passing a house in Serampur, and uh, he heard lamenting inside, and he went inside, and uh, he brought this man who had just died, brought him back to life. And Dr. Lewis asked Master, would you have gone inside if God hadn't told you to go? And Master said, oh, no. Masters don't do things from personal desire, but if God tells them, then uh, they will do it. When I met Master, he said, I'm seeing you only because Divine Mother told me to. He said, somebody came all the way from Sweden two weeks ago. I wouldn't see her because Divine Mother didn't tell me to. This is a state of consciousness that the average ego-driven man can't possibly understand. But somehow, in the presence of a great master, everything works out for the best. So when you have attained the state of Jivan Mukta, you still have past incarnations. Does it take billions of years to overcome billions of years of bad karma or karma? No. You can even uh, finish the karma of one incarnation in a single meditation. What you have to do is realize that although you acted the role of a pirate, let us say, it was God who acted that role. God dreams this entire show. It's a delusion to think that we are doing anything. He's doing it through us. And he acts through our delusions. He acts through our... We're not puppets. We're not automatons. But he's doing it. How? Well, let's face it. It's a very complex thing. But anyway, let me short circuit and simply say that if you really give yourself to God, then you go back in your memory and you realize that all was God, then you attain the state of Paramukta or Siddha. When you've attained the state of supreme freedom, usually what happens is this, that, uh, well, Ramakrishna told a beautiful story about three men who left their village, and they came upon a high wall, and they'd never seen that wall there before, and they wondered what could be on the other side. And so they decided that they would try to help each other till finally one of them could get on top of the wall. Then he'd come back and tell them. And so they had somebody stand on a stump and somebody got on his shoulders and then the third one managed to get up onto his shoulders and he managed to reach the top of the wall and chin himself and get up there somehow. And he looked down and he clapped his hands gleefully and he said, oh, how beautiful. And he jumped down the other side. And they waited. And they waited. And finally they thought, well, he's not coming back. And so they, two of them decided, well, let's, let's, we've got to get up there and find out what it is. So the second one said, well, if I can get up there, I'll certainly tell you. And he got up there finally by finding a taller tree stump, whatever it was. And he, too, as soon as he looked down, he clapped his hands joyfully and jumped down on the other side. And that was the last this poor fellow, the third one, heard of him. So he said, well, I've just got to know what's on the other side. So he found a tree, and he leaned the tree against the wall, and he managed to climb up to the top. And he looked down. He saw the most beautiful garden he'd ever imagined. Perfect bliss, perfect harmony, perfect everything. His first thought was, I just want to enjoy. But then he thought, but if I had jumped down on the other side, what about those poor people in the village? They won't know. So for their sake, he jumped back, and he went and told other people. Well, that person is the avatar. Most people, when they've finally gotten out of Maya, it's, they feel they've paid their dues. They think, enough of that stuff. I'm just going to enjoy my complete liberation. I remember when Master described Sister Ganamata, he said, I saw her sink into that watchful state. She won't come back. But when some souls have this deep-seated compassion 
They want to help other people to find it. And those people, when they come back, they are the avatars. Forget that ridiculous movie called Avatar. <laughs> That's just too silly for words. But a true avatar means one who has attained perfect freedom and then comes back and helps other people to get out of this dream of delusion and to understand that you are also that. So when you see a Jesus Christ come into this world, when you see a great master come into this world, don't think that he is something special. His whole purpose is not to show how different he is from other people. His purpose is to show that you are that too. That's what all the scriptures say. Thou art that. Tatamashi. You can accomplish what they have accomplished. The worst thing that they teach in the West is that you are a sinner. You are not a sinner. You are a child of God. A child of God who has made mistakes. Sin is just a mistake. Does God hate sinners? No. He may not like sin, but I can't imagine him hating anything. After all, it's his own show. <laughs> I remember when I was writing the peace treaty, I had several people in there who were villains. I had great fun writing those parts. I tried to give them all the justification that they could use to justify their wrong actions and wrong attitudes. I think God loves this whole show. In some ways, he may like the villain even more. I don't know. But anyway, don't quote me on that one. <laughs> but the truth is that when you know God, sin never existed. Sin is just dirt. I remember I had a, a window in... Uh, I don't want to talk too long here. I had a window in my office at Mount Washington that looked out onto a garden. So I would type at my desk and look out in this beautiful garden. One day there was a rainstorm and mud was splattered all over the window. So I couldn't enjoy it. Well, if I'd been a woman, I'd have probably gotten out there and cleaned it right away. But being a man, I waited for the first convenient moment, which was two weeks later. <laughs> and it, I had to, had to endure that muddy window for two weeks. And I remember when I finally got it cleaned off, and I stood back and I, I said, oh, what a beautiful window. Then I realized the reason that it was beautiful was that I couldn't see it. So you have only to get rid of that mud that makes you visible as an individual. But when there's nothing left there to see, because you're completely cleansed, then what shines through is God. You can really say, in a way, that the saints are beautiful because they don't exist. They express beautiful qualities, but it's not their qualities. It's just a different aspect of God. And the wonderful thing about it is, as I was saying, yes, was it yesterday, that bliss is ever new. And its expressions are constantly different so that every individual in this room, in this hall, whatever you want to call this thing, this space, <laughs> in this amphitheater, every individual on this planet, everybody will ex learn to express his own kind of bliss. That is why the saints are always individual. You never find two saints exactly alike. It's the saints who are unique. People are just imitations of each other. Frenchmen act like Frenchmen. Americans act like Americans. When women try to act like women, men try to act like men. But we're all one. And when we can understand that that, that superficial difference, once it's washed away, we do express, Master said in autobiography of a yogi, that every atom is dowered with individuality. And your own expression of that bliss will be yours and nobody else's. When you find yourself, you don't wipe out your uniqueness. You wipe out that which is just an imitation, a false coating. But you will be you. The beautiful thing is that in seeking God, you don't lose anything. You don't even lose your ego because you understand that that uniqueness that the ego tries to affirm 
is yours already if you've gotten rid of the ego. And God, through every soul, is in some way unique and different. What a wonderful truth this is, to know that everything is waiting for you in God, even your own sense of self. And when you come back to this world as an avatar, if you do, you will be you. And Master, when he was William the Conqueror, when he was Arjuna, when he was perhaps Fernando Tre in Spain, when he was all these different people, he was himself. And he had a very powerful and dynamic personality. How often people have been shocked to listen to his recordings. I Paramahansa Yogananda! He talked with great power. And you too will express that divine in your own way. And until then, you're just an imitation product. <laughs> you're artificial. <laughs>